It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 81, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Stephanie Spock raises two acres of vegetables and a whole lot of mushrooms at Rolling Hills Farm in Lambertville, New Jersey. She and her partner, John Squitcherino, gross about $165,000 in sales to a 200-member CSA, two farmer's markets, and a smattering of wholesale accounts. Stephanie digs into the inner workings of Rolling Hills mushroom operation, including the challenges and rewards of integrating that into a vegetable farm. We discuss some barriers to achieving profitability in the mushroom business and how they converted an old barn into a production facility and the fickle business of mushroom grow kits. We also discuss the ways they modified the popular permanent bed system to fit the needs of their operation and the heavy clay soil they farm on. The Rolling Hills Farm CSA distributes vegetables through a market-style pickup and a point system, and Stephanie shares the nuts and bolts of how both those systems work, from distribution through crop planting. Stephanie also shares some details about their land rental situation and how she and John work to keep the relationship with their landlords positive and mutually rewarding. And we learn about how Stephanie has managed Lyme disease as a young farmer. I really enjoyed talking to Stephanie. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Thank you so much for joining me at the Farmer to Farmer podcast. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Stephanie Spock, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. So glad you could join us. It would be great if we could start off by having you. Tell us about Rolling Hills Farm, what you guys are growing, how much of it you're growing, where you're selling it, and how long you've been doing it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we've been, far- I've been farming. This is my 10th year, um, and it's my partner John's sixth year farming. Uh, we lease the land and a house from two young artists, uh, Jane and Jason, and they live on the farm as well. And then Jane's brother has his wood shop here, and he helps us with various projects, like some welding stuff around the farm. And then we have friends at 10 bees here. The farm is about 15 acres. It's mostly wooded, and we produce on just under two acres of that land. And we have about just under 200 members CSA. We do a little bit of wholesale, and then we do two uh, larger farmer's markets. Uh, farm is pretty much what our name says, Rolling Hills. So there's Lots of hills everywhere, and where we grow isn't completely flat either, so we grow on some slightly inclined land. Um, For our CSA, we do a market-style share, which is like an account that members open up, and then they get a small discount, and they shop with us, just like a typical farmer's market. And then we do a point-based share, um, which also allows members to choose what they want to get each week. But for instance, our half-share is eight points a week. So each week they come and they get eight points worth of stuff or the full share gets 16. And then we do two pickup locations for our CSA. And then we also offer the market style share at our farmer's markets as well. Uh, We grow mushrooms organically in the bottom of our barn. And we converted that into a growing space. And then we also have four high tunnels in production. So I worked on a wide range of farms before coming here. I worked on one acre vegetable farm, I worked on an 800 acre wheat farm, a 500 acre animal farm, a 20 acre vegetable farm, and a six acre vegetable farm. And you did that all over the country too, right? 
Yeah, I went like to Alaska, Montana, New York, just kind of, I wanted to travel. Alaska was the only state I hadn't been to, which is actually how I got into farming. So I was supposed to go there and do trail work and it didn't work out. And then there was a farm that was looking for help and they were like, do you want to come do this instead? And I was like, oh, that sounds great. And then I just fell in love with it and it's been going since then. <laughs> now you guys are located in Lambertville, New Jersey, right? Yeah. Yeah. About an hour from Philly. And is Philadelphia then that's where you do most of your marketing? No, we kind of tried to stay away from the cities a little bit just because I'm not so much a city person. They kind of make me anxious just being in them. Uh, it's a little too many people for me. But we do a pickup in Lambertville, and then we do a pickup location in Washington's Crossing. It's where the infamous crossing of George Washington happened, and that's about um, a half an hour from Philly. So we go a little towards that direction, but we don't quite get to the city. Is Lambertville a large town? Is it a is it more of like a suburb? Are you guys surrounded by subdivisions, or are you are you in rural farmland out there? The well, they, it's a Lambertville technically a city. Some people say it's the smallest city in the country, which isn't true, but it's just kind of their slogan, I guess. Um, but it is there's lots of there are lots of subdivisions right around it, and then it just becomes very rural once you get probably about a mile and a half outside of Lambertville. Okay, which is where you guys are. Yeah, yeah, we're about a mile and a half outside of downtown, which is perfect because we're near town, but we also have our own space. And with that 200-member CSA and the farmer's markets and and a couple of wholesale accounts, about what are you guys grossing a year on your Um, farm? This year, it's going to be about 165,000. Next year, we're adding another market, um, and we're increasing our CSA. We cut our CSA membership off because um, we want to slowly build the business. We didn't want to just dive in and find ourselves over our head. Um, so next year, we're looking at probably about... And how much of that's coming from vegetables, and how much of that's coming from your mushroom production? Um, yeah, I think so probably about 75% is from vegetables, and about right now, about 25% is from mushrooms. We've been perfecting our mushroom growing techniques. It's quite complicated to do it indoors. You have to have like perfect humidity, perfect temperature, air circulation, uh, CO2 levels have to be perfect. And we are, have really gotten the hang of it this year. And so next year we're going to expand the wholesale for that. So we're hoping to make that about 30 to 40% next year. Well, let's dig into the mushrooms a little bit because I think a lot of people look at that as a supplemental enterprise on yeah, their farm. For sure. And I mean, I know I've got a lot of experience growing mushrooms. I've done I've done two whole kits that I've purchased and and grown them on my kitchen counter. And I bought a log one time in in Kansas with it. I brought home and and grew some shiitakes on that. Yeah. But so tell me about about the mushroom production. You guys had a building on the farm that you converted to serve as your mushroom production facility. Yeah, that's right. So we have a bottom of our barn that we, you know, we did some framing and a lot of insulation and stuff like that. Um, and then basically waterproofed it because it's so humid in there. You don't want everything to rot. Um, and then we figured out, you know, we some wiring, put some heaters in there and build shelving and hanging for our oyster mushroom bags and stuff like that. Um, and that's just something that we had to mess around with a lot our first year. Like how much air do they need? How much air do they not need? 
um, we get a lot of people that ask us, like, they want to hear, you know, in a couple of sentences, like, how to grow mushrooms. And I think it's kind of like heirloom tomatoes. Like, if somebody asks you, how do you grow heirloom tomatoes, you can tell them, but you're never quite sure what's going to happen once they, like, give it a shot. Um, we grew mushrooms outside for another farm we worked at together. And we found for us, it might be different for other people, but that it just didn't really make economic sense. Um, especially with the logs, you have to like soak them, they need to have the right humidity and they need to be back in the woods. So it's really hard to check on the logs if you're not doing a lot of production on them. So what we found is that doing it indoors, it's much easier to control all the variables and get a really good product. And you also don't get like the flies that eat on them and stuff like that. And are you guys doing more than just the oyster mushrooms indoors? Yeah, we're doing oyster, we're doing lion's mane, we're doing shiitake. And for the oyster, we do gray oysters. Uh, we do white oysters when it's cooler out. We do yellow oysters uh, when it's warmer out. And then we're going to do a little bit of maitake next year. And we might expand into it. Some of the stuff is hard to grow, like um, portobellas, like the requirements of them are so much different that we kind of have to grow things that all need the same temperature requirements. And are all of these being done in, in bag culture on a substrate? Yeah, we use uh, sawdust and then we use straw. Sawdust and straw for different species or are, those, are you mixing those things together? Um, right now we're doing sawdust for shiitake and then we're doing straw for oyster. Uh, just because the oyster, they both do well on sawdust, but the oyster do better on the straw. The shiitake don't really grow on the straw. So we're doing a little bit of both, um, and then we're getting, we have organic sources for the straw and the sawdust. How do you get an organic source for the sawdust? Does somebody have to have like a certified organic forest? Yeah, it has to be a certified organic like forest or woodlot. Wow. So that's not coming off of your own land. That's something that you're purchasing in. Yeah, no, we wish it was. We wish we could do the, we'd have enough trees, but you have to have um, certain species of trees and stuff like that. So we have a a friend who's doing the sawdust for us. Actually, they're up in Maine. Oh, okay. So walk us through the process of producing a mushroom crop, kind of from, from the beginning to the end of a, of a cycle. Yeah, sure. So we, um, so for our oysters, when we use the straw, we uh, chip the straw up. You got to get it really tiny. Um, and then we pasteurize it. There's low-tech ways to pasteurize and there's high-tech ways. Um, steam pasteurization is obviously the best that you could use um, for the straw. We do line pasteurization and then you have to let that sit and then drain and you have to have like the right. Um, so you said you're doing lime pasteurization. Can you, I, I guess I've never heard of that before. Yeah. So that only works for the oysters. It wouldn't work for the sawdust that needs steam pasteurization. Uh, but the lime, what it does is it changes the pH so much that it just kills any other mycelium that might be growing on the straw already. So then when you colonize the straw with uh, the oyster mycelium, then it's just the oysters that are growing there. Because it's really easy for another type of, you know, another type of mushroom to like take over the bag if it's not pasteurized perfectly. So the lime uh, does that really well for the straw. And we always try to do the most low-tech method that we can just to not have to put so much um, investment into the product. And is that happening inside of your mushroom production facility or is this something that you guys can do outside or do anywhere? Yeah, we do that part outside, um, which can be a little hard depending on the weather. There's a lot of checking to make sure 
when, especially when it's time to stuff the bags, that the moisture level is perfect. Because if it's too dry, it doesn't colonize well. And if it's too wet, the bags will just get really moldy. And then you're not getting, you know, you won't be getting any mushrooms from the bags and they have to be thrown out. And so then you're you're stuffing that straw into bags that are designed for doing mushroom production, right? Yeah, yeah. They're like bags on a roll. Um, and we stuff them in there and then we mix it with the uh, the substrate, which is basically like, it's kind of almost like buying seeds. It's like the roots of the mushroom. Because when you pick a mushroom, you're picking off the fruit, basically. It's not like you're killing the plant or killing the mushroom, I mean. It's uh, the mycelium takes over the bag and colonizes all the straw. And then are you hanging those bags up in the barn or are those all sitting on shelving? Um, it's, we, yeah, we hang the bags. We experimented with some bigger bags and smaller bags. The larger ones we hang, uh, the smaller ones can be put on the shelves. So it's kind of just what works in your space. We found the hanging works because we have really low ceilings in the bottom of our barn. You can't, John has to actually like duck his head when he's in there. He's a little too tall. Uh, so hanging them, we get, we think we get the most usage of space out of that room. Do you have just one room where you're doing all of the production? Yeah, right now we have uh, well, we have an incubation room because the mushrooms have to um, be in the dark when they're colonizing the bags. And then we have a room with like, light and it has a humidifier and airflow. And that's where the mushrooms actually grow. You're physically moving those bags then into that, into the incubation room and then picking them up and moving them and hanging them in the production room. Yeah, that's right. You said you're managing temperature and, and light in that production room. How long does the production last on a bag of mushrooms? Um, it kind of depends on how long you want it to last. Like your first flush is always the best. You get the most mushrooms from that. And then your second flush will be, we usually do two flushes on the oyster bags. Um, and then shiitake, we just do one flush because you have to like re-soak the blocks after the first flush for shiitake and then put them back. And then usually what we found is then you start dealing with some like mold issues just because it's so wet in the room, you know, it's so humid in there. And then the, so we just don't deal with that at all. And we just compost the blocks. And I, I assume then the straw, you're doing the same thing with that's going out into a compost pile or out onto your fields. Yeah, we compost with it. And then we use a lot of it actually um, in our furrows, which we've really been enjoying. It's really good for the soil and it's nice when it breaks down. In one of our tomato high tunnels, we mulched like our pathways just with the broken down straw. And it has worked really, really well. So what's the process for harvesting mushrooms? I mean, I'm thinking about, I mean, I know a lot about harvesting vegetables out in the field. And, you know, you're you kind of there's a there's a set of motions that goes along with that and you know picking things and moving it to the edge of the field and packing it up into a vehicle and getting it into the packing shed as quickly as you can are you dealing with the same kinds of pressures with mushrooms yeah it's actually you have to pick mushrooms very often and they probably go in there every morning and every evening to pick because they go from perfect to like too open very very quickly and when they open too much they sporulate so they release their spores which is actually really dangerous to breathe in. If you're in there all the time, you can become allergic to the mushrooms and it can, it's actually caused, we just, there's like a mask you're supposed to wear and we stopped wearing the mask because we thought we didn't need to. And it can cause like flu-like symptoms. We both have gotten sick just from being in the room for too long with the spores in the air. So you want to try and pick them before that happens. Um, and then we put them in trays and then luckily we're right near our packing station with them. So we can just walk right over with the trays and mushrooms, I don't know, they're not winter squash. They're not, 
too heavy. So, you know, you fill up a huge tray and it's only like five pounds. We just like twist them off or the oysters, they just twist right off the bat. It's actually really, really easy to harvest them. And then the shiitake, we cut off the blocks with uh, scissors. And so you're putting them in, in the trays. Is, are these like trays that are similar to a tomato tray or, or what do those look like? Yeah, they're very similar to, um, I got them at an auction last fall. I went for tomato trays for the heirloom tomato trays, those green ones from Canada. They like, you can put the one layer and they're almost like, um, like bulb crates, but a little shorter there. I was amazed to see them there because you could never find them. And then that way you you just want to do one layer of the mushrooms, otherwise they'll squish each other, but they fit one layer of them perfectly. And then they stack really well. And then what kind of post-harvest handling is required? Are you just walking these to the pack and shut and putting them in the cooler? Yeah, they just go right in the cooler. If you grow, I mean, it's harder when you grow them outside because they'll have like bugs on them and stuff, but because they're indoors, they don't get any insect pressure. And then, I mean, they look beautiful and perfect. And the only thing that's ever sprayed in the room is, you know, the mist from the soccer that we have. So there's nothing really else that has to be done to them. You've never had any problems with fly outbreaks or fungus gnats? No, we just hang. We have those like yellow sticky things that you can hang that a lot of people use in greenhouses. And we just kind of hang them all over the room and try to not get our hair stuck in them. And then are the mushrooms, are those going to your CSA or is that something that you're really directing towards the farmer's market and the wholesale? Uh, We try to do a little bit of both because when we, where we farm, there's so many farms around here um, that we wanted to have something that other people weren't necessarily growing. So uh, John went and did an internship with Aloha Medicinals. They're actually not doing them anymore, but it's like one of the most famous mushroom companies in the country. And that's how he learned. And it's something we wanted to have for our CSA members because it, you know, it makes it more of a full diet than just having vegetables and fruit because mushrooms are more closely related, you know, to animals and they are to plants. So it's a totally different source of food. And so many people that joined our CSA joined, I think, because they were very excited about the fact that we had mushrooms available. So we try to have those just about every week for our CSA members. Um, and then we have them for market every weekend as well. Is the crop planning for mushrooms similar to doing it outdoors? I mean, you you know, if, if we inoculate a bag of mushrooms at this time, I'm going to be able to put those in the 10th box of the year. Yeah, it's kind of, we know when to start in the beginning of the year, and then it's kind of like a lettuce, where if you want to have it all the time, you just have to do it all the time, because, you know, it's there for a couple weeks, and then it's gone. Yeah, once we start the mushrooms, we kind of have to do them every week uh, for the rest of the season, just to have them all the time. So, you know, in the middle of, we've been trying to make it more efficient, because in the middle of the growing season, when things get crazy, sometimes it's hard to have the time to put towards the mushrooms, and Every now and then when things get a little too crazy, they seem to always be the first thing that gets put on the back burner. So do you guys have an idea of the relative profitability of the mushrooms versus what you're doing out in the field? Yeah, I think mushrooms are really hard to be profitable on. We talked to a lot of different mushroom growers and they've all said it's really hard to get there. Um, Our first two years growing it, we definitely weren't there. I think last year we broke even on them which we were really happy about. Um, and this year we're finally starting to make money on them and next year will be even better. 
what is it that keeps you from making money on the mushrooms? I mean, I know like with carrots, you know, it, it tends to be the weeding and that it takes some extra time with the post-harvest handling to get them as clean as the customers want them. What's holding you back in the mushroom department? Yeah, I think it's kind of like the infrastructure and figuring out exactly what your needs are. Um, you have to have the room at like a perfect temperature. So heating in the early spring and then cooling in the summer. Um, and as you're trying to figure out, you know, perfecting your technique and the moisture level, if you're, you spend, you know, two hours stuffing bags and then half of them you have to throw away because they didn't colonize properly. Then you're all of a sudden, you know, at like half the amount you thought you were going to get. I think that's something that, as you know, as you figure those things out, it gets better, but it's not something I think you can throw into your farm and expect the first year to have it, you know, to be making more profit. And you said that John learned to do mushroom production at another farm. Did he go and do that while you guys were already farming? Or is that something that, that he came to before you guys started? Uh, so when we farmed at our uh, the farm where we met together, we were doing some outdoor production. And he was always really, really into it. He was reading books about mushrooms. And, you know, he just loved them. And then our first year of farming, he had a friend that did an internship who told him about it. And then he left for the month of October. and. I was here and I, you know, I planted the garlic and I put everything away for the winter and took care of all the rest of the markets and CSA for that year. Are the mushrooms going to be a scalable part of your operation? You mentioned that you're looking at some pretty substantial growth next year, um, you know, 50% or more. Is this something where the mushrooms are going to scale along with the rest of your business? Or have you kind of hit a spot with the mushrooms where you're, where you're at a limit on your facilities? Uh, we built the room to for growth. We built it knowing it was bigger than what we needed for our first two years and for even this year, knowing that, you know, next year we can put twice the amount that we had in there this year. But we didn't want, you know, it's like when you buy a walk-in cooler, you don't buy the smallest cooler. You're, you buy something a little bigger because, you know, eventually you're hoping that you're going to fill it up. So that's kind of what we did with the mushroom room as well, which it was a big investment the first year, but now we're really glad we did it because it'll be less an investment in the future. Do you mind sharing how much of an investment it was to convert the bottom of a barn into a mushroom production facility? I think that cost us probably, I'm trying to remember the exact number, somewhere around seven to $8,000. And you guys did most of that work yourself then for that price? Yeah, luckily, yeah, for that price. Yeah, luckily, um, Will, who has his wood shop at the farm, he he um, rebuilds old barns. So he'll tear down barns and rebuild them. So he's really good with construction, with electrical work. He knows all that stuff. So he's kind of a genius. So whenever we would have a problem, when I was like figuring out how to build a door and have it swing perfectly, you know, he would come and help me figure out what I was doing wrong. So we're really lucky that we had him around when we were doing all that stuff. Yeah, we could all use somebody like that. I know. <laughs> So, Stephanie, when we were talking before the show, you mentioned that you're also doing mushroom grow kits for people, kind of like the ones that I buy for my kitchen counter. Yeah, right. So we've been doing uh, experimenting with those a little bit. It kind of depends, I think, on your market for them, who you think will be buying them. We do a market in Asbury Park. It's at the beach, and there's a lot of tourists, and they get really excited about stuff like that. And they want to buy it, you know, to do a science project with their kids. But if you're doing a market where it's people that are just coming to their grocery shopping every week, like another market that we do. You don't get the same yield from the mushroom blocks that we get because you don't have all the, the perfect requirements. And what we found is that at, so 
those markets, people will come back sometimes and maybe even be a little upset because they didn't get three pounds of mushrooms from a block. But that's what makes it a little hard because you don't quite know like their growing conditions. They usually have it in their kitchen. So it depends on if you think people are wanting to buy it to like have a fun experiment or if you think they're wanting to buy it to, you know, actually grow food for themselves. And have you found that there's much competition in the mushroom market or is this something that you guys are pretty much have a corner on in your neck of the woods? Um, I think where we are, it's actually really hard because we're right near Kenneth Square, which is in Pennsylvania and are the biggest mushroom producers in the country. So we had difficulty when we first started trying to get into farmer's markets that were producer only because there's um, a few vendors that would they buy in the mushrooms and they resell them. And we couldn't get into producer only markets, even though we were growing our own mushrooms because of that. So I think where we're located makes it a little bit difficult, especially with wholesale, because they're growing so many mushrooms that they can wholesale them really cheap to restaurants in the area. But I think, especially if you're not anywhere near Kenneth Square, it's much easier from other uh, mushroom growers that we know to market your product. That's obviously just a, a small part of your operation. You said about about 25% of your of your gross income. Does it come out to be about 25% of your work? Yeah, I think I said it takes up probably about, yeah, 20 to 25% of our time. You've got this substantial mushroom business that's integrated with your, your vegetable operation. Can you tell us more about the vegetable farm that you guys have? Yeah, so we um, we do just under two acres. And when we first started, we were... We weren't sure after working on a 20 acre farm, we're like, how are we going to make money on two acres? And we were very nervous when we stepped into it. Um, we did it part time our first year working at restaurants, um, basically to pay for the farm. We had friends who had gotten into really bad debt uh, starting their farms, and we didn't want that to happen to us. We wanted to make sh- not set ourselves up to fail. So we uh, slowly built a farm, and we were really committed to you know, the JM style market gardener our first year. And then, you know, we started reading more books and we found our own style that year. John always says that we're writing our own book. Um, We have soil that's really high in clay and we have lots of rocks, even though we've spent hours and hours and hours picking them out. So we found that not all of his techniques worked for us and we kind of had to shift things make it work for what we wanted to get out of the farm. So we do a lot of sale seed beds. Uh, we're really, really into that. The silage tarp. We have the power harrow for the BCS, which we love. Um, we do permanent beds in our high tunnel. We broad fork everything, even if, you know, if anything that has like a long root, carrots, beets, whatever we're going to transplant, we always broad fork after we make the beds. Um, we try to only use a chisel and a disc just to not, you know, tear up the soil as much. Um, so we're kind of finding our own balance, I think, with figuring out our style while also taking some things, you know, the market gardener style or the lean farm style and just kind of making it work for what we want. So you guys are using a tractor on your two acres. Yeah, luckily the farm came with a tractor, which was a lifesaver. It had a John Deere uh, end loader that it was actually Wills who has his woodshop here that he just let us use, which we've been super grateful for. And we're currently in the process of um, buying it from him. That makes it a little hard to do something like what JM's doing where he's got the permanent beds, because if you're out there with a tractor and a disc and a chisel, you're, you're kind of breaking that up and then having to remake those beds every year. Yeah. 
we just be from our soil being, we think as we build it up, we'll be able to go into the permanent bed style, but just with how we have a lot of shale in our soil and a lot of rocks, as I said, and we found that when we let the beds sit there, they just started to get really hard and it was even hard to broad fork them. Um, and we didn't like the quality of the crops that we were really, really into quality. We want everything to look perfect. Um, we didn't think everything looked the way we wanted it to growing that style. And we found, I remember one day we were, you know, upset about a crop and John was like, I'm just going to chisel and dish these beds in and remake them. He's like, I know we're trying to do permanent beds and he did it and we seeded something there and it was beautiful. And we decided at that moment, okay, we can't just like do what someone else does. We have to figure out our own thing. What other modifications have you made from, from what we might call the, this permanent bed system that so many people are doing on, on your scale? Yeah, I mean, we think it's a great system. So what we tend to do is we'll make a bed, especially in the spring, and then we let them, even in the fall, we like to make beds and then let them sit there all winter with compost on them covered in a silage tarp. And then in the early spring, we just pull the silage tarp off and we have beds to work with without having to worry about the soil drying out and everything. Um, so we've been doing that and we do a lot of, we do double seeding, triple seeding, uh, beds every year, which I think is the only way that farming on such small acreage, you can make it work. We use a lot of compost because we can't do a lot of cover crops because we just don't have the space to grow them. We do a lot of buckwheat and stuff like that in between stuff in the summer and some oats and peas in the early spring. But then we just get a lot of, actually, luckily, because we have Kenneth Square near us, it's really easy to get organic mushroom compost that they bring out by the tractor trailer load. That's a huge advantage to be able to have a, an inexpensive and convenient source for good compost. Yeah, it's amazing compost. We love it. Sometimes it has mushrooms in it, but we're okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned that you're doing, on, on a lot of your ground, a couple of crops a year. How long of a season do you have there in New Jersey? Um, so our, like, 50% last frost is April 15th and then October 15th for the first frost. So we're, you know, we're zone 7. So we get a pretty good season. We do a lot of early stuff and we do a lot of late stuff. Um, we do low tunnels in the early spring. We throw crops in our high tunnel before we turn it over to tomatoes. So outdoors with that April 15th to October 15th frost-free season, what kinds of crops are you guys growing out there? I'm imagining that you're fairly heavy on the salad crops. Yeah, we grow lots of salad mix. We do it all with transplanting. We really like the salanova. Uh, we think it helps a lot with weed pressure and stuff like that as well. This was actually a really strange summer for salad mix because it was so hot for about a month. I think we had, it was like a hundred and five to 110 heat index for almost three weeks. And the, le the lettuce didn't really like that that much. Um, yeah, we grow a lot of salad mix, a lot of arugula. We grow lots of beets, lots of carrots. Uh, we do grow a lot of tomatoes. We grow less of things that people don't really care that much about, like kohlrabi, which is kind of why we designed our CSA the way we did. We were nervous when we first did it, doing the point system, that people you know, we wouldn't have enough stuff for people. But what we found is, is it's made us grow what they want to grow instead of just not things that we have, you know, that are fun to grow, like kohlrabi, bok choy, snappy cabbage. We grow less of that, and then we try to have more things. Like, people always want carrots. They always want lettuce. They always want spinach. They always want beets. They want tomatoes. 
So the person that recommended you for the show said that you guys have a really high retention rate with that point system that you offer. Yeah, we have. We're at about 75% from last year to this year. Um, I just think it makes, even if you have, you know, turnips and radishes out there, if people know they have the option, I feel like they're even more, then they're happier grabbing it, that you're not forcing it on them. I kind of thought about what I would want in a CSA. Um, like, I'm not a really big eggplant fan. I like it a little bit, but not all the time. And just at all the other CSAs I worked at, I feel like, you know, for like eight or nine weeks, you're just giving them eggplant every week. And people get to the point where they're like, what am I going to do with all this eggplant? And so I wanted to give people the option of you can take eggplant if you want. If you know you're not going to eat it, like, it's totally okay. Because then we have farmer's markets that we can bring it to and we'll push it on wholesale. So we don't really have a lot of waste at the farm, which we thought would happen when we started doing it. But, you know, tweaking it out last year now seems to work perfectly. Do you find that the demand for the the different crops is pretty similar each year? Yeah, I think it is. Every now and then you have, you know, on some like morning talk show, they'll talk. Like I remember this year, kohlrabi, some show talked about kohlrabi and everybody wanted it all of a sudden. It was like this new thing. We were like, what's going on? Everybody hated this last year. But I think besides like little things like that, people tend to want the same things every year. And how does your business split up between the farmer's market and the CSA? We have uh, three people that are doing the different pickups and farmer's markets. So usually myself and our intern will share the CSA loads. I'll do one pickup and she'll do the other. And then we do a Saturday market, which I do with a worker. And then um, John does the Sunday market with a worker. So we find, I mean, it's a little bit too much sometimes. We're really excited to hire more workers next year. I think it'll ease the workload a little bit um, and give us the opportunity to look at our systems a little more and not have to be in the field as much. Now, that's something that that has been a, a theme in a lot of the conversations that I've had on the podcast here is people putting limits around their time out in the field. Are you guys still in that phase where you're just working pretty much all the time? Or have you guys set up some boundaries around that? Yeah, we've started setting up boundaries a little bit. I'm, it's hard, especially when you live here, to go inside and, you know, you're inside in the evening thinking about like five other things that need to get done. And it's, we've been trying to not let ourselves uh, go back out there in the evenings, but sometimes we do. And I just recently started getting my master's degree online. So I think it's been easier for me to be able to be like, no, I have to go inside for a little bit and separate myself from the farm a tiny bit. What are you getting your master's degree in? Uh, I'm getting it in human nutrition. My goal is to start a nutrition practice through the farm and do, you know, cooking classes and work with people that have like heart disease, diabetes, stuff like that. Interesting. What's, what's going to be your timeline for completing that program? So I have uh, two years in the program left and then I have to do an internship and then we'll be pretty much good to go. Our goal is that when we eventually purchase our own land, that's when I'll be finishing and we'll be able to tie it all in together. With your employees, you mentioned you've got a, you have an intern on the farm. Yeah. Right now we have uh, one intern and she's five days a week. And then employees in addition to that? Uh, we just have a couple of like, high school kids that help us with farmer's markets on the weekend. That's not a lot of people for the amount of product that you guys are pushing out. No, it's not a lot of people. We This time every year, I think we really realize how much it's not enough people. <laughs> 
But next year, we're planning on hiring an assistant manager and having two full-time interns, which, especially with adding another farmer's market to the um, to our business, will really help. So just to kind of pivot back to the production, you said that the salad mix is really is a really important crop for you guys and that that's something you're doing a lot of transplants with. Now, are you only transplanting the Salanovas or are you transplanting other salad mix crops as well? We've, I mean, we experimented with direct seeding salad mix, but we just like the product of the Salanova so much better. And what we found is a lot of people don't necessarily like at least around where we are, they prefer our salad mix because there aren't any spiced mustard greens or Asian greens um, or, you know, any chicory in there. They really like that it's just lettuce because what we found is with a lot of markets that we do, everyone that's doing salad mix has something else in there, which if you are just looking for, if you're just looking for lettuce, you're not usually, you know, it kind of steers them away from it a little bit. What are you doing for transplant production on that? Because if you're if you guys are doing a lot of salad mix and you've got successions going all year long, that's a that's a lot of production. So can you kind of walk us through the production cycle for those salanovas? Yeah, so we do uh, less time in between in the summer and more time in between in the spring and fall. In the spring, we can do you know a big planting, and we found the salanova will last for longer; it won't bolt. But in the summer when it's hot, about every few weeks, we have to transplant that out um, just to get it, make sure that we always have it because it's hard when it gets really, really hot out. We had a couple of weeks this year where we haven't had it because the heat was like 115 degrees and there's, we'd plant it and it would just basically die right after we planted it, even though we were watering it. Very, very sad. <laughs> and you're seeding that then in the greenhouse. What kind of flats are you putting that in? Uh, we do that in two hundreds, just the your typical flats. We are thinking about getting a vacuum feeder for next year. I've been looking at them a lot. We think that will speed up um, stuff like that and make us not have to be in the greenhouse as much. Because what we found is, I think just about every week we're like, when are we going to squeeze greenhouse work in? So much other stuff to do. That outdoor stuff always seems so much more urgent, even though that stuff in the greenhouse is so important to keep that succession going. Yeah, it's really easy, I think, like the mushrooms, to kind of put that on the back burner. But you also have to be able to kind of see the full picture and be like, well, if we don't get that started, we're not going to have it for a week and, you know, force yourself to ignore the tomatoes for a minute and get in the greenhouse. How many of those 200 cell flats are you guys seeding each week? Um, We do about two beds worth, so it's usually like 15 to 20-ish. That's that's quite a bit of seeding to be doing by hand. Yeah, I've gotten really fast at it. <laughs> yeah, you want a vacuum seeder, so just yeah, trust definitely. me on that, okay? <laughs> um, and then when you're putting them out in the field, you said it's it ends up being just two beds out in the field. Do you have 100-foot beds? Yeah, we do. We have 100-foot beds. Um, some of them are about 110 feet, and then we have 160-foot long beds. Okay. And, and are you just setting those out by hand? Yeah, we're doing them by hand. We have the... Um, the dibbler from Johnny's, it's like the seed bed roller that has a dibble attachment. We really like that just to do different spacing. Um, and then we do all our transplanting by hand. And then what are you doing for irrigation? We do drip. We do some drip irrigation. Uh, we usually do drip on the Salanova. And then we do. We have some overhead. We have wobblers. And then we have micro sprinklers, which we like the micro sprinklers for baby carrot just because it with our 
soil that's really high in clay, if we use the wobblers, we found we get like a really hard crust on the top of the soil, even if we put compost in it and mix it in. Yeah, that can be a real challenge with those heavy clay soils and something like carrots that kind of that hook out of the ground rather than growing straight up. Yeah, it was really hard for us to our first year to figure that out because, you know, everywhere, a lot of the places I'd worked, I didn't have soil like that. And I think it just completely changes everything like the clay, um, the carrot seeds with the clay that you can use in the citrus seeder. We found those were horrible. I think just because it was like clay on in clay and they just would germinate terribly. And so we learned very quickly never to use those. And then we learned very quickly never to use the wobblers because we had bad germination rates. From the crusting. Yeah. What are you doing for weed control? Wheel hose and and, uh, and a variety of hand implements then? Yeah, we, uh, we use a lot of hula hose and we use wheel hose for the furrows. And then we try to do a lot of scale seed bedding, which we found has been the biggest time saver for us. It's Sometimes seems like it's not going to be because you're putting effort into that, but just stale seed bedding, you know, letting it sit there for like three weeks to a month and watering it. And then, you know, we have a tilter that we'll use sometimes to just tilt it in or we use the power hair really, really shallowly. And then we seed right into that. So Stephanie, you mentioned that you guys were using the six row seeder for, for your carrot production. Is that what you're using most of the time when you're direct seeding? Uh, we started to get away from the six-row seeder quite a bit because right now, basically, all we've been using it for is arugula. Um, we really like using the earth paper carrots. Just, I think, because of our soil, it's hard for us to use the six-row seeder and get the seeds buried deep enough where we've been having, like, really bad torrential rainstorms, and we found them whenever we use it. Even if we use the seed bed roller and like push the seeds into the soil when it rains, just tends to like wash the seeds away a little bit. So we've been really uh, enjoying the Earthway and we have big plans to get a jang for next year. Okay. So with that, I think we're at a good spot to take a break here. So we're going to do that. And then we'll be right back with Stephanie Spock from Rolling Hills Farm in Lambertville, New Jersey. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got started as an organic vegetable grower, where he learned that quality transplants really mattered and that quality transplants come from quality potting soils. Just like the donkey in their logo, Vermont Compost Company potting soils aren't glitzy, they aren't glamorous, they're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from just a few cubic centimeters of soil. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Their full truckloads and shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that sometimes get shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Plus, you pay a lower price for the potting soil. To get a quote from Vermont Compost, go to the ordering page on their website and submit the request to quote form. This form also adds you to their mailing list so you stay in the loop on the program. And remember, the donkeys that I mentioned earlier, they're the real thing. You get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com
Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought one for ourselves. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working on our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Stephanie Spock from Rolling Hills Farm in Lambertville, New Jersey. Stephanie, you mentioned that you guys are leasing your land from, it sounded like, a couple or a few artists. Yeah, they're, uh, it's actually a really um, interesting relationship. They, it's a married couple. They're both in their mid-30s, and they have their art studios on the farm. So they, have, they each have their own building where they do all their artwork, um, and they're pretty well known in the art world. And then um, one of the artists, Jane, her brother, Will, is the one who has his wood shop here. So we have a nice little community feel going on with them. We were really nervous when we first came here and we started the farm and moved in because we've heard so many horrible stories about relationships with landowners. And basically everyone, I think, that we've heard talk about it says, don't do it. It's not going to go well. But they grew up on a farm. Their uncle actually owned a farm called Cherry Grove Farm, an organic dairy farm right near us in Princeton. So I think they kind of understood the farm life very clearly before we came. They knew it wasn't just, you know, us growing beautiful vegetables. I knew there was going to be trays sitting outside the greenhouse, you know, dirty bins that had to get washed. And they kind of understood that part of it when we came here, um, which has been very beneficial and they've helped us a lot just, you know, with various projects around the farm, they'll take care of, you know, our dog. If we go away, we take care of their dog a lot. It's just a really, really nice relationship. And I think part of the reason it worked out so well for us was because they are a lot younger and, you know, they have their own things going on. They're away a lot. They're going to Iceland in September. They do a lot of artist residencies. So then I think they appreciate having us here to kind of watch over the whole farm. So how did you find these folks or how did they find you? Yeah, we, so after we left the farm that we were working on together, we were trying to figure out our next step, which I feel like is very hard as a farming couple. When I was the field manager and my boyfriend was working under me at the time. And so we were getting ready to move away, but it's like, it's very hard when you're both want to manage to find a farm near each other. So we were both interviewing at a bunch of different farms and we kind of realized that unless we started our own thing, there was no way we could find work near each other. One of us was going to have to give in to what the other person wanted to do. So we were just kind of looking around and then on the NOFO New Jersey website, um, we actually found on the classified listings, they had posted that they were looking for someone to lease the land. And we were like, well, why not? Let's go check it out. And then we came out here and it was October, I believe. And the grass was as high as my waist out in the field where we were going to be growing. And we decided, let's 
let's just go for it. And we dove right in. So the land wasn't in production when you guys took over management of the farm. No, it had been the last time someone had planted a bunch of Christmas trees around it, hoping to start a Christmas tree farm. And then the last time it was farmed before then was in the 80s when it was an ostrich farm. I like that. That's a nice little detail. Yeah. Yeah. We find lots of bones around. <laughs> when you guys came in October, did you guys set up with a with a written lease? Yeah, we had a written lease with them, um, which I think was more their So their uncle who owns the organic dairy farm, they actually leased land from that farm to another organic CSA. So they basically just copied that lease that they had with that farmer. And then we sign that. And are you guys basically paying, a, is it a cash rent situation where you're you're just paying money for acreage or do they get a percentage of what you grow or how does yeah, that work we, out? We just pay money for acreage um, and then we moved here. So that just kind of became part of the whole farm lease was that we were leasing the farm and it included housing. So we just basically pay them, you know, in a check every month for that. And then we share uh, electricity costs with them because their studios are on the, which is hard to figure out sometimes, but luckily because they're so amazing and such a great relationship, it doesn't, there's never any problems that arise from it. What do you and John do to keep that relationship good with the landowners? Um, We give them lots of produce on the doorstep, which they really appreciate. We always tell them to take produce because that's very important to me that, you know, especially since they're living here and they're seeing it, being grown that they're eating the produce um and we babysit their dog a lot you know we try to help out with stuff around the farm if something needs to get fixed if they need to borrow our car um whenever they need to do artwork around we'll have to borrow our cargo van to bring stuff to this uh to new york city and we'll make sure you know we're always on top of the recycling so they don't one less task that they have to worry about since they deal with, you know, our noises throughout the day. So there's there's some real give and take there in how this works because, I mean, you're doing all those things for them and then they're not only providing you with the land, but you mentioned that they've helped out with some of the infrastructure projects that you guys have had. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, we just were converting part of our barn to have a kitchen and bathroom in it for our intern to use. And they, you know, helped with that investment because increasing the value of their land, which we don't expect them to do at all, but they're always really adamant about that, which has helped us greatly just in the financial scope of things. That's really great to have that kind of a, that kind of a relationship. How do you feel about putting not only the work, but the money into developing infrastructure on a farm where you're just leasing? Yeah, we've been, we've made sure uh, that basically everything that we build would be able to be moved when we eventually start our own land besides the deer fence um, and, you know, stuff that we did to the mushroom room. But, you know, any like fans and heaters, all our high tunnels, we made them not too big so that when we had to take them down, it wouldn't be such, you know, a tremendous task. Um, we're getting a couple of small sheds right now for next year, just from more storage near the crop. And with those, we're making sure that they're each small enough that when it's time to move them, that it'll be easy to move them to our own property. So you've been on this farm for four years. How much longer do you see yourself staying there before you invest in your own land? Because it seems pretty clear that you guys are looking out and saying, well, there is an investment coming at some point in the future in your own real estate. Yeah, I think it's really hard for us because we just enjoy being here so much. Um, And a lot of the land around here is very, very expensive. Uh, 
to right where we're surrounded by are two of the most expensive counties in the country to live in. So looking at farms, every time we look, we tend to be like, well, you know, we have a really good thing going. So we're just kind of doing it slowly and waiting till we find the perfect place. And then I think our general plan after that is not just to move there right away, but to maybe lease that house out to someone else and continue to farm here and slowly like work on building the soil there and putting fences up and, you know, maybe building a barn if we need to. And then just, you know, eventually transitioning everything over there. Having that managed transition from one piece of property to another is really, well, really important. I I mean, you know, especially when you're running an organic farm, you know, it's not like you can just, it's not like you can just replicate what you're doing someplace else. Yeah, it's really, it's very hard. I think some of our systems will probably change depending on where we go. We had friends that had an animal farm that just moved their entire operation over the winter and they were very, very stressed out. And I was like, I don't ever want that to be us. (laughs) Now, I should have asked earlier, do you have a long-term lease arrangement with your landlords? No, we don't. We signed a lease the first year. And then after that, I don't think we've ever signed another like it was a one-year lease, and now I think it's just kind of like, you know, I think when we eventually do decide to move on, it'll be a conversation we have with them. But, yeah, there's no long-term lease. I mean, that would have terrified me coming into this, but now I just don't – it doesn't make me nervous at all. And do your customers identify with the location of your farm? All of your pickups happen off the farm. Do you get customers out to the farm? Uh, yeah, so we did our pickups off the farm because the driveway down to the farm was shared with a neighbor, and um, our landowners kind of requested that we didn't do a pickup here, uh, which the only bad thing about that is not being able to do you pick. Um, but it's actually kind of nice to not have people coming to the farm all the time. So, but we do. I mean, we have like trails in our woods that go around. There's a really nice swimming hole back in the woods, and these beautiful ponds. So we always tell people, you know, you're welcome to come, like take a walk. Welcome to come, like, see the farm. We try to give at least one tour every year where we invite all our members out to see it. Uh, we really want to do, like, a fall event and have them out here just because I think it's nice for them to come see the farm. Um, but I think part of the reason why our CSA works for a lot of people is not everyone necessarily wants that CSA where you go and you do, you pick for an hour. Some people just want to come and, like, they just want to eat local healthy food and they want to support a small farmer and they want to get their produce, but they lead busy lives as do I. I don't think with our lifestyle would ever be able to join the CSA and go to you pick with everything we have going on here. So I think we kind of appeal to those people that just want to come get their produce and go home and eat it. And, you know, that's what they're into. So let's talk a little bit more about how you've got your CSA structured, because it's, if I understand right, you've got two different systems that you're using. You've got the this kind of the point CSA, and then you've got the the market CSA. Is th- is that a fair characterization? So we kind of talked a lot about what we wanted to do before we did it, um, and I just think there's so many different kinds of people out there. You know, there's people who go on vacation for four months out of the summer and like your typical CSA share wouldn't work for them because they're missing out on four shares. And that's a big loss of money, you know, over to see them. And then you have people that are around and they want to get their produce every week. And so we kind of wanted to appeal to both of them. And I think for me, just knowing that I don't like to eat, like necessarily everything that's handed to me, like mustard greens aren't really my favorite either. I wanted to have something where 
people weren't getting turned off by the CSA model where it was more, you know, pulling them in by them getting to eat like local and organically grown produce, knowing where it comes from, but also getting to choose the things that they know that they would eat each week. So we try to send out a newsletter every week before pickup and it says what we have that's going to be available and how many points everything's worth. So for instance, a bunch of carrots would be a point. Um, a points are worth about $2.50 to the farm. So we try some things. If it's a point, like a bunch of radishes, we would typically sell for $2, but we can't do it for, you know, 0.75 of a point. So some things are worth a little less, but most things are worth more. And then when we're swimming in something like eggplant, we might write a point is up to two pounds of eggplant or a point is up to three pounds or all you'd like. And then people can kind of pick and choose how they want to use the points. Um, Sometimes we have a limit on them, something like head lettuce. If it's just starting to come in, it'll be limit one or some things don't have a limit at all. So if someone wanted to can tomatoes and they wanted to use all their points on tomatoes, we would say, go right ahead, you know, take as many tomatoes as you'd like. And we found that it tends to balance out really well. Um, sometimes at market, we'll run out of things because a lot of CSA members wanted them that week. But then we just take note, you know, grow a little more this time next year. This is when everyone's really into carrots. It's when they're, you know, the first starting to come, like grow one more bed. So are the people that pick up at farmer's market, are they also on this point system? No, they just do the market share. So we developed that for people who come to the farmer's market uh, and for people who go away a lot. You know, some weeks they want a lot of produce, some weeks they want a little, they won't always be able to be there. Um, and that's a smaller discount. It's like 10 to 15%, depending on how big of an account you open. So for instance, if you open a $250 account, you get $275 in there. I believe it's a 10% discount. And then they can use it at any CSA pickup. They can come to Lambertville. They can come to our Washington Crossing pickup. They can come to the Wrightstown Farmer's Market, or they could come to the Asbury uh, Park Farmer's Market that we do. So it gives them the availability of, you know, these all these different days where they can pick up their produce. And they're not locked into uh, one particular pickup time. So the the market share folks, they pay a little bit more and and they get some more flexibility in what they're doing. And then the points people, you know, if you're if you've got eight points a week, you've got to use those points every week. You can't just stockpile those and show up and say, OK, I want 32 points worth of vegetables this week. Yeah, exactly. The points are just you have eight points every week. Um, if we have a member that has an emergency or they tell us in advance that they're going on vacation, um, we'll let them, you know, like, okay, the next few weeks, just grab like two extra points worth of stuff. But that's kind of the limit of that being flexible. But the market share, yeah, if they don't spend all their money, it rolls over to the next year. And if they spend it all, they can always put more money into the account. So it has a lot of flexibility, which I think a lot of people really appreciate. We've actually been starting to get more this year compared to last. More people are um, switching over to the market share. When you're doing the point system, can you tell us a little bit more about, about the details of how that actually works on the ground during a distribution? Do you, you must have signs out that say, Hey, this bunch of radishes is, is worth one point. And then do you have somebody who's actually like checking that person out? Like you would at farmer's market looking and saying, yeah, you've got eight points worth of stuff, or you've got 10 points and you need to put two points back or, how does that actually work on the ground? So the first couple of weeks, there's always two of us there. And we kind of walk, especially new members, through the system, 
how they tick their produce, you know, how many points or that everything's worth. And then we have signs in front of everything. So, which sometimes gets a little confusing, but once people get the hang of it, they're good to go. It'll say, you know, a bunch of radishes equals one point or $2 a bunch. And that's for the box share people to know. And then for the market share people to also know how much it would cost if they just buy it through their account. And then after the first couple of weeks, we just kind of let people go. We're always there talking to them, giving them recipes, restocking, um, asking them how their week was, you know, just getting to know them. And then we just kind of, you know, put all our trust in them and we let them figure out their points and then leave. And we found that works really well. Um, I think it would be a lot more work if we were trying to check everybody out at the end. But I think most people are pretty honest about the pros that they're taking. And if someone accidentally grabs nine points, it's not really the biggest deal in the world for us. You talked earlier about how how this has played out in your crop selection, that you don't, you know, you're not trying to grow enough eggplant to get a pound of eggplant in everybody's box every week. Um, are you guys still growing crops like eggplants and mustard greens and, and kohlrabi? Or have you guys pretty much dropped those because the demand is so low? I think we've just been trying to grow a little less of them. So like this spring, rather than doing, you know, full beds of kohlrabi, we would do, we did a few successions of it and we would do half a bed of kohlrabi and half a bed of bok choy planted together because we found that was what the demand was for those. If we had a whole bed, a lot of it would have gone to waste because we're, you know, we're not just shoving it in boxes and trying to get rid of it. Um, So we've kind of been like tweaking it a little bit every year. We try to do stuff really early like a lot of it early when people are excited about it. And then like one really, our first eggplant succession is big. People are really excited about eggplant when you first have it. And then they kind of, it kind of like peters off a little bit. They lose interest in it. And we try to grow more unique varieties. So we grow the fairy tale eggplant, the little eggplant that you sell, you can sell in like pints or quarts. And we found that those are really successful with our CSA members. They like that it's something different that they don't necessarily see in the grocery store or, you know, the Asian eggplant, whenever we try to always have that the first week and have no Italian eggplant, because then as soon as people try it, they, what we found is they just become obsessed with it because it's, I think, so much more delicious than the Italian eggplant. And then, you know, they kind of learn about new vegetables that way. Do you make any effort to push new vegetables on people? I mean, I remember in my CSA, and I've certainly seen this with a lot of other on a lot of other farms where folks will say, well, part of the advantage of the CSA is that you're you're going to get to or even be forced to try different things. But, you know, you're letting people just completely they could skip the kohlrabi and the bok choy if they wanted to. Do you spend time trying to sell people on those crops, essentially, while you're standing there at the distribution? I think what really sells it for us is our newsletter. So I send out a newsletter every week. Uh, I put a bit of time into it. That's usually what I spend probably like an hour or two on Sundays doing. And I'll always put a recipe in there for something. Like when we first had Hakurai turnips, I put a recipe for, I think, turnip chips with like a dip that was Hakurai with like the turnip greens. And people who had never had turnips before tried it because they saw the recipe in there. And then they were like, oh my gosh, those turnips are amazing. So I think kind of just, or I talk about a vegetable in the newsletter, like, you know, I've talked about kohlrabi or, you know, the importance of greens and like how good greens are for you. And after that week, like, you know, it was when we had a lot of bok choy and everybody was like grabbing bok choy because it's like one of the best vegetables for your health. So as soon as I like let people know that they were like, oh, and so they thought about it a little differently than they would have before. 
So, Stephanie, another thing that you and I were talking about when we were chatting before the show, you mentioned that that actually, even though it's the middle of the afternoon there in New Jersey, that you're okay with being out of the sun. In fact, you have to be out of the sun. Yeah, I got, so last year I got diagnosed with Lyme disease. We actually, all of us at the farm have had it. Um, We think it's our proximity to the trees because the ticks tend to go in between where the grass and the trees meet and there's a lot of trees around us. So I've had it, uh, my partner John had it last year, which was a little rough and we both had it concurrently. Uh, Both our landowners have had it, both our dogs have had it. Um, So been a little trying, but with having it, I've been taking a lot of supplements and stuff and just keeping myself healthy and eating very, very well. And then I go out really early in the morning, like before the sun's even coming up. And then I'll take a break in the middle of the day. And then I go back out in the evening until the sun sets. Just because of the doxycycline, it causes your skin to burn. My understanding with Lyme disease, and I I don't have any personal experience with it, but it's the... That it's exhausting, right? I mean, that that fatigue is like one of the the major symptoms. Yeah, that was the first thing I got last year. I was having to sleep. It was like about a four-day period before I finally went and saw a specialist where I was sleeping about 16 hours a day. And before that, I would sleep like six hours a night and I'd be good to go. And I remember when I went to the doctor, he was like, well, sometimes our bodies change as we get older. And I was like, that's in a year, like, I think there's something really wrong with me. And then we eventually figured it out. Um, and then I just treated it. And apparently I had gotten bit a few years before that and just hadn't known the way my test results came back. And then I did a lot of research on it um, because there's a lot of studies now that relate it to Alzheimer's disease, that relate it to, you know, ALS, like all these crazy things. And they say it's in your body forever. And that a two-week course of antibiotics doesn't kill it because it hides in all these different forms in your body. There's like a biofilm form, this form, and the typical like spirochrite form, which is what the antibiotics kill. So I'm on about, like I take about 20 pills a day to kind of kick it all back while boosting my immune system at the same time. And how are you dealing with the fatigue? I mean, that must just be, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine dealing with that 16 hours of sleep a night and trying to farm at the same time. Yeah, luckily, once after a few days on the doxycycline, I the sleep's good. I take I usually just use my lunch break for a nap. I'll like eat something really quick, and then I'm really good at napping. So I'll take like a 15 minute nap, and then I'm good to go. Like I could go back out there and feel like I got a full night's worth of sleep. Um, been drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> coffee <laughs> always helps. I'm really good friends with people in the coffee shop now. They know me when I come in. They know what's going on. They know to get me three coffees for me, John, and our intern. And I think that's helped us all, especially through the heat when we're feeling like we're dying. We'll drink a bunch of water and then chug some coffee. And do you have any advice for people around Lyme's disease? I mean, I I'm not. I don't want to put you on an on an expert pedestal here or anything, but I mean, like you said. I feel like oftentimes when I hear about Lyme disease, it's something that's that's gone undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. Is yeah. Is there anything that you would have done differently or that you recommend that other people do? Because this seems to be something like torrential rainstorms, like droughts, uh, like crazy heat that's cropping up more and more in our community. Yeah, there's been a lot more cases of it um, in recent years. And I feel like it's this almost unspoken about epidemic. That, so. 
I usually tell people as soon as they tell me their symptoms, they think they have it. I say, go see a specialist. Like, don't just take antibiotics and expect that it's going to work because it's not going to, because it like gets into like your brain and stuff like that. Um, and that's just, I always tell people, see a specialist. I recommend books to them. Um, I tell them about, I take Therapapse, which kills the biofilm form. I take grapefruit seed extract, which kills the cyst form, um, which most doctors don't really know about unless they're called, there's something called a Lyme literate doctor who knows a lot about Lyme disease. So I always just recommend going and seeing one of them because I think it's a really serious thing that, um, doesn't really get looked at as a serious thing because even when like when my line came back this year, a typical doctor would say I was just having um, like aftershock after symptoms that I don't actually still have Lyme disease, even though all my symptoms came back. It just, which is strange because if it's in you, you're going to have symptoms. If it's not like, why would you still have symptoms? So how do you find a Lyme literate doctor? Um, There's lots of websites that you can look at and find the ones around you. There's, quite a few in every state. Um, and then there's also like different books you can read. Like there's one called Why Can't I Get Better? And that's a really good Lyme disease book. It's a Lyme specialist from, he's right outside of New Paltz, New York. And he's like the best Lyme disease doctor in the country. So if anybody ever has it, that's the first place I call them to. We'll post a link to that on the show notes. Oh, then. great. All right. Awesome. So on on that rather depressing note. Um, <laughs> let's, let's turn to the lightning round. What's your favorite tool on the farm? Um, I would say probably the front end loader, anything with tires, probably that, you know, helps us to haul around all our produce and our tools. Having it uh, really helped us tremendously with just about every task. We use it to mulch, unload orders from trucks. We don't have pallet forks, but we found using the bucket and chains really works. Um, we use it when we're harvesting heavy crops and so much more stuff. Uh, we have a lot of hills here, so trying to get something like compost and wheelbarrows would be crazy. We would be going up and down the hills all the time. Uh, I think from being here, we've really appreciated just the tire, just having anything that has a wheel on it makes life so much easier. You know, the 5,000-year-old technology, right? Still, yeah. Still cranking away. Mm-hmm. And I think we tend to, you know, not want to rely on those things because, you know, we're strong and we're like, oh, we'll just carry this bucket up the hill. But I have like a very distinct memory of our first year. We had summer squash and buckets and we were right near the wash station, but it was up the hill. And we were like, let's just carry these up there. And actually, Will was coming down the driveway and saw us and he was like, why aren't you guys using the tractor? And we were like, oh, that probably would be the smart thing to do. <laughs> I do think there's some, I, I remember that there's something romantic about, about carrying stuff by hand, yeah, you know, sweating like and you're like, Oh, I'm a farmer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you, you can be a farmer and use wheels too. I think it's a, it is definitely the way to go. What's your favorite crop to grow? Uh, that changes a lot for me. I think like this spring in June, I would have said garlic because we have the best garlic here we've ever had. It was huge. Right now, I'm kind of obsessed with peppers, like like sweet peppers, hot peppers. I just kind of love them all. You know, we have so many colors right now at market. It looks so beautiful. We have purple purple and orange and yellow and red. And I just was, I just found out they have as much vitamin C as an orange. So I never knew they were that good for you. So I've really been enjoying picking them and we grew a really great pepper crop this year. 
if you had to choose one pepper variety to grow on a desert island, what would it be? Uh, the Aranos pepper. I love it so much. It's like like a frying pepper. It's one of the longer ones, and it's the sweetest pepper you'll ever eat, and it's bright orange. And I think just having it at market sometimes just like pulls people into our stand because it's so pretty. And we'll fill like multiple baskets with it. What's the last book that you read? Ugh. Unfortunately, Anatomy and Physiology, because that's the class I just took. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, but besides that, um, I'm trying to think. I read a lot of books. I'm really, really into reading. It's kind of what I do in the evening with my lunch break. I can't remember the last book. I started rereading Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. It's kind of the book that made me get really passionate about farming, and I wanted to refill that a little bit. I like that. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think I would have told myself not to worry so much about what everyone else is doing and how you're comparing to them. I think it's really easy sometimes for us to get so caught up in what you think you're supposed to be doing based on what you read or what you see going at farms around you. You kind of like lose sight of your own vision. And I think that separating myself from that and focusing solely on the farm for a little bit really helped us to grow tremendously as both a farm and as farmers. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Stephanie. This has been fantastic. Yeah, Chris, thanks so much. I had a great time. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 81 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Spock. That's S-P-O-C-K. If you value the podcast, you can show your support several ways. You can become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly donation through Patreon, which is kind of like a Kickstarter for ongoing projects. It's a great way to show support for the behind the scenes effort that you don't hear about from research and scheduling to editing and getting the show online. If you use the Amazon.com link on farmertofarmerpodcast.com, Amazon kicks a percentage of what you spend back to the show, and it won't cost you a penny more. Go to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate for more information and all of the relevant links. Thank you so much for your support. Reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of our business, so if you enjoy the show, please bounce on over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. It helps a lot when we go to talk to sponsors and it helps us a lot too for just getting up there in the ratings so that we show up when somebody goes to search for a podcast about farming. You can sign up for my email list at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. And I'd love to get your guest suggestions. This episode is a direct result of those suggestions. So please keep them coming at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>